podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Chris Brunty. On today's episode, oh boy, we are joined today by author and writer, Victoria Sandbrook. And before we get into that interview, I just want to remind everyone that we do have a Discord and a Patreon. So if you want to come and support us and independent artists like us, you can do so just just go on the Patreon. You get cool stuff like uh, quarterly World Build With Us sessions that we make into the podcast. You get front-of-line VIP access to all of your world-building prompts. So come on, join join a Patreon if you want. Or not, that's fine too. Anyway, enough of the shilling. On with the interview. And welcome. We are joined today by, very excitedly, mind you, by author and writer Victoria Sandbrook. Very, very happy to have you here. I'm very glad to be here. Victoria, for those who might not know, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a speculative fiction author. Um, I've written a handful of shorter, written and published a handful of shorter works, um, most of which skew towards the fantastic. And uh, I am perennially working on um, fantasy novels. Um, I have not yet published one, but I am um, ever working towards it. Um, I have also got a background in publishing. I was a nonfiction book editor for several years. I am a freelance book critic uh, for Publishers Weekly. And I have two kids who keep me pretending pretty much day in and day out uh, on one <laughs> level or another. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> I think that's so important, right? To kind of stay grounded in the fantasy of it all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Daniel, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Yeah. So, so to give you give a sense of like what stuff um, Victoria has written, she's like, you know, a few of the big name I feel like um, magazine outlets out there, from Giganotosaurus to Shimmer, and she's got like a novella out. Um, but what I thought was really cool about her work is she switches styles between each of these. Um, and they're very different from each other. Um, and, and there's in El Cantar, there's a very kind of like lyrical style. And then in her Sun Moon story, she's got more of a, it's a like terse kind of Western feel. And then in the novella, you've cultivated this, you call it um, mad science, gothic mad scientist, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just, I'm curious, like what inspires you to um, write all these different styles and like, how do you prep yourself for that? Yeah. Um... I think to some degree, I, I'm not sure. I feel, I feel like I'm still at the early side of my writing career when it comes to um, really my experience with thinking craft through and putting it on the page and, and doing sort of the best job that I can. Um, And I, I do try to make the style that I choose fit the character and the setting, like to make everything do more than one thing all at once. Mm. Um, so I, as much as um, my choices are different than any other, you know, any other given author might be, um, I do feel like the the style, the tone, the words that I'm picking, the mechanics that I'm using on a sentence level, it's all driven by... Um, sort of the effect that I'm trying to create for, uh, for the reader. Um, and, you know, Sun Moon started out as one of my first unsuccessful attempts at Flash. And I will say unsuccessful <laughs> because I have, I have yet to, to really, I think I have one published Flash piece, but I am very mm-hmm. bad at Flash. Um, and I am continually bad at Flash. People read it and often say, this would be a great novel. Um, so I'm, I'm always trying to force myself to go shorter and sun moon started out as flash. It's still very, very short. And, um, I needed it to be as, as terse and quick as possible. And I think Mm -hmm. that also works for the setting. Um, and it works for the character and everything sort of blended together and made a much different voice. Um, you know, a much different set of mechanics than I would have used for, you know, my, yet unpublished uh, novel about amateur botanists set in 1860s New Hampshire. You know, that's a very different, you know, that's going to be closer to, you know, to what's in my novella um, Mm -hmm. just from a period standpoint. Um, When you're talking about just the dystopian West, um, you know, I think there's an expectation for how things read 
And I do keep that in mind. Um, but I do also think it's sort of a layered effect. It's part of, it's part of what's building everything else for the reader as an experience. Um, so I, I think that I, I do try to use my muscles to really develop <laughs> a much bigger, a much bigger toolbox of word choice, syntax, all those things so that it is a different experience every time I start out writing and every time someone starts out reading my work. I want someone, I want our listeners to actually hear a couple of sentences of this like rich lyrical style because we okay. don't get to see it often. Okay. Um, so I'm going to send you a little, a little couple of sentences I snipped out. I just want to hear the, the, what you talk about adjectives and word choice. Okay. The willow box went on top and slightly to her left. From it, she drew a sheet of paper milled by lovers quarreling at midnight, a dark tincture ink of mustard seed and sheep's birthing blood. Her bone quill carved from the crooked finger of the still living but long forgotten god that had forged her in her first mother's womb. I mean, talk about magical ingredients. Like that's the bread and butter right there, I think. <laughs> and and not only that, but that that type of language is just so like precise and and evocative as well. Like that is really fabulous stuff there. Um, I, I do have I do have a question, right? Because you're talking about switching from flash fiction to novella to short fiction. And, you know, there's that, that famous kind of uh, saying where uh, the short story is all about capturing a scene mm -hmm. and the, the novel is all about, you know, following that scene and, and expanding upon it. How yeah. do you view flash fiction in that regard? Right? Like, do you see oh. it as like a distillation of a feeling compared to a scene is it, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on that in terms of craft? Um, so what I attempt and, you know, take this, take this with, you know, that, that reminder that um, most people read the flash that I write and say, I want the rest of the series um, and not the rest of the flash <laughs> series, the rest of the seven book fantasy novel. Like what, why is this? <laughs> this is not a scene. <laughs> this is not flash. Um what I, I, what I try to do in Flash is capture that flash in the pan moment of a feeling. And I think, I, I mean, what I, th I think that one of my problems as a writer when it comes to writing Flash is that I am seeing the whole iceberg and I am hinting at the whole iceberg the whole time. And while that's great for the experience, I think I'm also laying the groundwork for, like I said, the rest of the novel. And that's not what Flash really does. Um, I do have a hard time being so economical that the, all the story you want is contained in those 750 words. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And it is, it's, it's a, it's, you know, I think the, the flash that I see that succeeds really well um, gets the audience to be very wrapped up in a very deep world with very few words. And then it, it finishes and you, and whether or not you want to read more about the world, you at least feel like this experience is over. You know um, you don't feel like you're, you're left waiting at a movie theater for, you know, part two. Um, you know, you're not in an intermission, that sort of thing. And I, I don't think that I've necessarily done that well within that very hard limit of flash fiction, uh, you know, that below thousand words. Um, I think I got as close as I could with Sun, Moon, the Truth. Um, it is, I think it's 1500 words if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And it needed, it needed one more beat after it was flash. It needed one good, strong beat that it couldn't, that made it not flash. Um, and I think that story needs that one flashback that sort of changes the tone that gives, you know, that gives it its, its forward momentum that gives you reasons why to care. Um, and I didn't do it under a thousand words. And I think that's fine. I don't think there's, I don't think I necessarily have to succeed at flash. I will keep trying. I think it's a really great exercise for someone who naturally writes long, um, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. naturally comes up with, you know, ridiculously huge novel ideas that 
are very unwieldy. Um, so, you know, it's, it has definitely given me some really great projects. Um, and, you know, and you know, one of the stories that I'm very proud of, you know, Sun, Moon, the Truth, I think it would not have come out if I hadn't tried to do Flash. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Take, take, maybe take my advice about Flash and my thoughts about Flash with a grain of salt because <laughs> I don't know that I do it well. Um, but it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, I mean, especially with a genre that is notoriously long-winded. I mean, we've we've talked about the idea of fantasy and why it necessitates, you know, 1,100-page books and often yeah. as much as it does. And to tell a fantastical story or a speculative fiction story within, uh, you know, so such a such a a tight constraint is actually very impressive, and and kind I of agree. shows like yeah. I mean, it, it kind of shows that the type of craft and expertise that you need, not just with the form, but also with the genre that you're dealing with as well. Yeah. Yeah. You have to know, um, you know, you have to know what currencies to borrow on with your reader. And I read plenty of Flash where I, it doesn't connect with me because, you know, it, it might connect with the, you know, 10 writers sitting next to me at the con, but not me because I'm not first in that subgenre, you know, I don't, I missed the connection to the convention that tells you, you know, like the literary convention that, that pulls you in. And, um, it's a risk. It's a huge risk to not, to not be able to lay out your reasoning for including this in other ways to not, to not hint and, and, or to always hint and not necessarily to always make obvious. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I want to keep working at it because I think it's a brilliant form. Um, and, you know, I also want to like applaud any writer who does really well in Flash all the time because like, I don't understand how their brains <laughs> it's work. It's like poetry it's writing. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good, I think that's a good, um, actually a good analogy because mm -hmm. it's, yeah. there's so much, there's so much about it that is form and there's so much about it about escaping form. And if you don't know what you are escaping from, Mm -hmm. You can read it and enjoy it, but you may not, you may miss some of the undertone. And if you're not well-versed in it, the people that are experts read your attempts and think this is great, but you know, you can push a little bit more. And that push sometimes is really hard to master mm -hmm. um, as a newcomer to the forum um, without years of practice and experience and critique after critique after critique. So, yeah. In your stories, you're doing it in a, a different time, in a different career, uh, assuming that you don't have a background in botany, which would be embarrassing if you did. Uh, <laughs> but what what do you do to uh, do your research? How do you set out uh, doing that? Is there like one source that you go to or do you, do you start out and be like, all right, foundations of botany kind of thing to make it mm. feel more lived in and real? Um. It really varies. So, um, you know, when it when it came to botany, it's a. I was I was editing a field guide to alpine flora and fauna, um, at the time, and so I was surrounded by the most brilliant minutia of of flowers and plants above treeline in the White Mountains, and I was immediately addicted and needed to tell a story about somebody who, you know, was setting the stage for, you know, amazing science, but which was, you know, someone who was a, an amateur. Um, so, you know, I had my very first research book in my hand when the idea came to me. So I think that helped a lot. Um, I mean, I, the research there spanned so so much. There's a lot of experience that I did that, that played into it. Um, you know, I've been a hiker. Um, I love the whites. The whites were my introduction to hiking. Um, I have spent a lot of time above treeline up there. A lot of my friends are either conservationists or naturalists in their own, in their own right. And, um, you know, I, I knew a lot when I went in there. Um, I also had access to an amazing historical collection at the Appalachian Mountain Club, 
where I worked at the time. And, um, I put my, I got to hold everything from, um, you know, collections that people had put together with all their botanical samples from that time to essays that had been published through the club, um, back then. Um, so, you know, really I love primary, I do love primary research when it taught, when you're talking about, um, you know, an, an actual historical moment. Um, and that novel, um, is very much, um, this world adjacent, um, fantastic, but it's, you know, very much placed in 1860s New Hampshire. Um, you know, when, when it came to writing, um, my novella, um, and setting it in 1890s Philadelphia, um, I did, honestly, I did way less research in part because I wasn't looking at street names and wasn't talking about a setting outside of this Gothic manor home very much. Um, I reached out to some friends who know a lot about Philadelphia and the time. So I totally borrowed, you know, and I don't mind doing that either. Um, and I, and I did some reading on ballet history. Um, I grew up in dance. Um, I knew a lot of ballet history, but I needed to refresh myself, um, you know, with some of those things. Um, it's really a combination of the internet and people and interlibrary loan, <laughs> um, and checking out every book I can find and browsing bibliographies and indexes like a madwoman. Um, and I can really get lost in the research. I can really really get lost in the research. Um, I mean, I, for a single scene in a, a, a novel in progress I have, I checked out probably 10 books on, on trade in the Ottoman empire, you know, towards, you know, towards the end of the 1800s and looked up, you know, exactly why tulips were so important in Ottoman palaces. And like, that's, that's going to be a nice sentence. <laughs> I didn't need the book, but I got the book. I read most of the book, <laughs> you know, are we, are we um, going to get into tulip mania over in the Netherlands so we can talk about the economic boom and bust that came with it? It was my speculative first it, market. Yeah. That was my first introduction to it. And suddenly yeah. I was like deep, you know, I was so deep, you know, so there's so much that I know I don't know about about history and so much I love learning along the way, you know, when, when we're talking, like it's an, it's an interdisciplinary research process. It's economics, it's, it's social research, it's costumes and, mm -hmm. and how people dressed and in how all that plays into trade and financing and social structure and politics. And it's like, I love it. I love that it's all connected because that's what makes it real to me as a writer, that's what makes me feel like, you know, I can build something new based on my knowledge of how it had happened, how we really did things as, as humans somewhere in the world. Um, and it gives me all sorts of great ideas for, um, you know, building, building something that I feel like is really well thought out. Um, and, and it often, I feel like the best parts of research, um, have not broken my plot, have not broken the characters that I set out to write. They have only improved upon things. Like I've never gotten to, I don't think I can ever remember getting to a spot where I had written something and I was going back through in revisions and I was, I was shoring up my research and I found something that didn't work and I had to go back and rewrite um, and in a, like, I broke this, this, this whole scene can't happen. Um, it was more like, all right, I need to move where her belt was that color. I need to switch, you know, or it was, um, this actually gives me an even better idea than what I had. And this makes it even more real and even more fun to write. So, um, research is really, um, one of the, I feel like one of the best parts of the process so far, um, for me because it, it just gives me more ideas and more fuel to do what I do. I love how in depth you went with that. And I love how much 
the research really informs the rest of the work. Like it, it even if it, I mean, if you want to talk about icebergs, right? You right. want to talk about the idea that all of this is just a foundation for what you actually write about and the interconnectivity that you talk about there is exactly yeah. what I think is so important when it comes to not just world building, but fiction and writing in general. Mm-hmm. And man, that's so much fun, especially like as someone who plays tabletop role-playing games quite often and has almost certainly been put on a list due to what <laughs> I have researched, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> be, because that's just how it happens. You know, it's like, Hey, how much of this chemical would I need in order to wipe out an entire village? Let me just oh, type yeah. that up real quick. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, just in case that my players get that together, it, it's, I'm sure that everyone who's ever DM'd has had that. Don't look at my search history, please moment. You know, where you're just looking up the stuff because you need to know because you just have to anticipate it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I was going to say, I definitely had a moment. Um, I, I logged a couple of those moments in my Facebook feed, like I was talking about writing, and, like where I was in the process. And I have like, mem- like memories pop up on a yearly basis. It's like, I blew up a railroad today. And it's like, oh God, <laughs> why did I do that? And at the same time, oh, that was the day I blew up that railroad. Oh, that's so good. You know, and research. I, I mean, it's all for research. <laughs> yeah. Heaven forbid anyone ever takes that seriously. Yeah. 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 Speaking of research, um, you open your novella with a thank you to sensitivity readers. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get um, for for a lot of our listeners, like they're not all craft people or writing people necessarily. So I wanted to get a little bit of an explanation of what that is and how it's used in publishing and then how it's helped you. And also maybe if you could talk a little bit about how um, the different cultures that you've written uh, play uh, into that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I use sensitivity readers for my novella um, in part because, well, no, solely because, not just in part, solely because I have um, a uh, a main character there. Um, one of my, my two narrators is um, a young female doctor from Damascus, and um, I am not from Syria. I am not a Muslim woman. Um, that is not my, that is not my faith or my identity. And yet I have her as a character and I wanted to make sure that I was representing her, not just fairly, um, in, in the work, but very well. Um, and I had, I could, you know, I could probably do an entire podcast on, um, (laughs) on why I chose her. Um, but that aside at the point where I had chosen her and I had made the decision to write, um, in a perspective that was very different from my own um, and, and to have that perspective affect um, the plot um, and, and affect the character and the way the characters relate. I knew that I needed to make sure that I had not only done my research, but that I had talked to people who could identify with that character um, in at least one way who could tell me, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Hold on. You've done something really offensive here. Um, and I needed to make sure before I even talked to those, um, those three wonderful women who, um, who did this work, um, um, on my behalf, um, you know, I had to make sure that I had done all of my homework and, um, I read and read and read and read to make sure that I had done as much as I could. And they definitely still had comments for me. And I had to very much be prepared um, to hear them say something like, you have created a character who really doesn't need to be Muslim, who really doesn't need to be from, from Syria. Um, And this is, this doesn't make any sense. Um, I needed to hear, I needed to be able to hear, you know, you have imposed a Judeo-Christian worldview on someone who doesn't have that, Mm. you know, please go back to the drawing board. I, I'm really glad that I didn't hear those things. Um, I, I hope that, um, you know, their, um, their comments and, you know, I believe their comments really helped hone, um, a character I had built and made her, made me understand her more. There were some things that I was having her do, um, that I didn't understand the significance of, and they helped me put those last few pieces together. 
it's the way you, you know, if you know that someone always throws salt over their shoulder, um, you know, you know, in a conversation and you don't know why, and you just have your character throw salt over their shoulder while they're talking, you miss the whole point that it's supposed to be to ward off the devil. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe you need someone to tell you like, Oh, this is an old superstition, you know, and it's supposed to be done only when, you know, this and that happens, you know, um, and, you know, I needed someone to sort of double check those moments and to give me some of that context. Um, and it, it worked really well. I think sensitivity readers are really important for closing those gaps. Um, mm-hmm. They are definitely not people who are there to educate us writers in what we need to do. We need to show up having educated ourselves as best as we can in, in the cultures we're writing and the different abilities and the different ages of, of characters we're writing. Um, you know, I went to sensitivity readers because I had written, I had written someone very different for myself in culture, in terms of culture. But, you know, if you are writing someone who has a different brain than you, you know, who is neurodivergent and you are not, or, you know, you are, but in a very different way than your character, if you have someone who is very differently abled than you, um, from a very different socioeconomic status than you, it's good to have somebody who has those experiences be part of your critique team, part of your final check, um, and to give them, at least within your own mind, the power to say, go back to the drawing board. You have to fix this. This doesn't make sense. Um, and to give them space to to bring that reality to what you're, what you're writing. Um, so I'm really glad that I got to... Um, got to work with those three women. Um, and I think the piece is so much better for what they had to add to, to my writing, to my craft. I want to, I kind of want to follow up there a little bit because I have this feeling that, you know, people often see, uh, writing as such a solitary experience. And in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways, I, I think that's mostly true, but where I think that a lot of people tend to lose sight of that is in the editing process, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I think what you're talking a lot about here is coming to the editing process with such an open mind, trying to keep as much of, or, or trying to do as much research as you've done. Obviously you're a fan of research, which I very, which I very oh. much appreciate. Um, yeah. and, and if I can kind of follow that up, I mean, you've clearly been in like the writing industry for a while. And I, I want to ask you when it comes to, uh, getting your work published. Uh, do you count how many rejection letters you get? Like some people do. Uh, and, and if so, or, or just, I, I want to talk a little bit more about like getting published in general for those who might not know and where you kind of, I mean, cause you're published now, right? You've made it. You're, you're already yeah. raking in the thousands of dollars, right? Oh, hun- tens of tens of hundreds of cents of dollars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, you know, I just, you know, to, to sort of start talking about publication, I think it goes back to the community of writing. Um, I would not have anything published had I not found a critique group, a community of people to, to shake me awake about my own hangups, much less to really help me polish stuff. Um, I don't think I really started maturing as a writer until I had a regular critique group and I was reading their work and they were reading mine on a regular basis. Um, and that really started changing things for me. Um, and what I realized, um, as someone who had been on the opposite side of the table a lot, I, you know, having been an editor, um, what I realized that as a writer, what I wanted to bring, um, was sort of this balance of, of hubris and humility. I had to have enough confidence in my work that I would submit it to my critique group that I would sub, I would, I would finish what I was started when I'd finished what I would started and I would send it out to editors until something stuck, you know, and like that, like you need that kind of confidence as a writer. You have to believe that you have something worthy of publishing or, you know, you're going to get a couple of rejection letters and you're going to be like, well, it's not good enough. I, um, why, why keep putting myself in this position? Um, but at the same time, I have to have enough humility to listen to 
my peers, to listen to the editors, to listen to the audience when you start getting reviews um, and, and to take that into account and to say, you know, okay, I'm not perfect. Okay. I, you know, not everything I write is going to win an award. Not everything I write is going to get published. Not everything I write is going to get through my critique group with that. This is good. Um, you know, like you have to, you have to be able to balance those, those two things. And, um, I think I would not have gotten anywhere if I hadn't found many moments of balance with those. And I still, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not perfect with this. There are some things that I have gotten the most in-depth personal rejections on. This is perfect. If you would just, and I won't, I'm sorry, I won't. That's, it's not, no, <laughs> I'm not going to change it for you because I love it the way it is. And it may never get published because I don't want to change it. Um, and that's fine. Um, so, you know, you have to, you have to be able to do that too and accept that sometimes. Um, but you know, all that community is also so important when you start sending stuff out and getting into the rejection mill and just constantly sending things. I am, I am a rejectomancy practitioner. <laughs> it is, it is not healthy. Um, it, it gets, I feel like it gets me through, but I think it probably holds me back just as much as I think it gets me through. I track stats. I look at the percentages at the places I send stuff. I eval, you know, I, I know that this rejection over that rejection, you know, when you, we, this is quite good. This was very good means I read to the end or I read past the first page. You know, there's all that online if you want to find it and it can break you. And it can also give you so much hope in like two <laughs> little words um, yeah, it's, I track everything. I track everything. My husband thinks I'm, I'm crazy because I have so many spreadsheets for this stuff. Um, but it gives me, it gives me a little bit of sense of control when I know I really have none. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's sort of like a harmless, you know, it's sort of a harmless thing in, in many ways. Um, you know, being a little obsessed about exactly where in the, in the process, any one piece might be. Um, but it's all, you know, and so I have fun with it. Um, that, that actually sounds like a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. Like having the Excel spreadsheet open on multiple screens is, is always fun. Yeah. <laughs> and like in having, and ha you know, I use submission grinder. Um, and I, you know, you look at the percentage, like, okay, well, 98% of people just get rejected, but then there's like a, you know, 1.5% of people get a, a personal, you know, and, and it, it, like so many people get past this point or that point, And I got into that one and a half percent, you know, it's like, I, it doesn't necessarily mean much about my writing, but it gives me some, you know, it gives me some hope sometimes when it's hard to find hope elsewhere because rejection letters don't come with, you know, much, much more than form letter encouragement most of the time. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, you take, you take what you can find, what you take, what hope you can find as a writer and what hope makes you tick. And that's, that's what kind of makes me stay afloat. Uh, flipping back to, uh, writing about experiences that, you know, or experiences that you've had, uh, how would you say having children has changed either the way that you write beyond time constraints mm. and everything? Mm. Um, I think I was not able to understand the true depths of existential dread until I had children. Um, because not only do I have that for myself, I worry about their future. I think that in, and maybe this is in no small part COVID, um, and politics and, you know, everything that's going on and climate change and all that, like all the things I have to be scared about for my, for my girls. Um, you know, I, it would, it, I sort of look back and I think, you know, it would be easier to only worry about me. Um, so I think the depth of the depth of emotion and understanding, um, that, that came with being a mom that really came with, um, understanding that like, I have, I have lives in, in, in my hands now. Um, and you know, I have chosen to bring them up in this world. And, um, I think that all really has changed sort of what I choose to write about. 
um, I have some very personal um, stories that have, have not yet been published that um, I don't think I would have tackled had it not been, you know, the, and had I not had the realization that, you know, that my experiences needed to be put on paper for my kids too. Um, in, and, you know, ways, stories that I've written to process some of the things that I've gone through as a mom, um, and as a person, um, and, you know, handling my own, um, you know, psychological and emotional state as an individual in a, in some crazy times. Um, I think those are really important things and those may never be published, but I think they're very important exercises for me as a person, for me as a writer. And, and like I said, I think they're things that I have on paper for my kids to read. So they understand someday when they are mature enough and ready to read that stuff, if they have the desire to read that stuff, it's there for them. Um, and, and I think I appreciate more um, the, the breadth of, of age ranges that my characters can be in as well. Um, you know, enjoying writing a character who doesn't have kids to worry about, you know, thinking about characters who do thinking about characters who have adult kids and they don't have to worry anymore. Um, I don't think, you know, I think I had kids in a time when I was sort of maturing a great deal as a writer and really, um, starting to write characters who weren't always, inside my own experience set. Um, and I think, um, I don't know, I think they gave me some courage to really stretch, um, at times because, um, I realized that there were like, they, they just made me realize that there's so much more of the world beyond what I can see and touch. Um, and I'm sending them out in the world to experience those things in some ways for themselves. So I don't know if that was, Sorry if I'm not being at all concise here. I'm... That's the whole world in the kids, though. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the, the the entire breadth of experiences there is like, I, I mean, I am childless at the moment, so I I'm I'm like also like, oh god, this is it's gonna be oh oh my, you know, like just recognizing all of that and what's what's happening is oh that's deep, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, uh, it's special. It is and and. And I have written so far, I think only one story. Um, no, okay, two stories. I've I've written two stories about my motherhood experience um, that have nothing to do on paper with my motherhood experience. If that makes any sense, like no one would read them and be like, "Oh my God, she was processing what she's going through," um, mm -hmm. and they were so much fun and I return to them and they're very different. One is hilarious and one is one is hilarious, but will also make you cry. And the other one is just like dark and scary and like body horror. Um, and, and I love going back to them so much. Um, and understood like knowing where I've like how far I've come since living those experiences. Um, and it's, it's, I think the closest thing I've come to journaling, which is weird. Like I've never been a journaling kind of person. Um, but that is my, that like, those things are like definitely my journals. And at some point someone will read them and, you know, like I've read them at conventions, you know, they'll end up published somewhere someday, I hope. Um, but, uh, I've never been more proud of stories that I, I think may not see the light of publication. Um, so that was, that was a new experience for me as well. Um, not, you know, writing things that I'm like, you know what, if no one ever, this never makes me any money. If it's never commercialized, if it's never like given an audience, eh, that's fine. I'm really glad I wrote it. Um, I'm not usually like I, as much as like, I love my art and it's for me, it's also very much something I want to do professionally. So it's, it's, it's a new thing to not, um, to not have those aspirations for a few of my pieces. Speaking of, of those lost journals, um, hmm. one question I have to ask you only because this is a world building podcast and we've got to eke oh, out yeah. as much advice as we can out of yeah. our precious guests. Um, you spoke of the legendarium and what that means to you um, early in your blog, really. 
Um, and I was wondering, you know, what are your advice to um, newbie world builders who are hoping to create either, you know, something create something that's you know mm. role playing, something that's writing, something that's a play, whatever format it's in. Um, how can the legendarium help them? Help them, and how has it helped you? Also, um, what is the legendarium for those who don't know? <laughs> yeah, so I have. Um, I was writing for a while. I was writing. Um, myths and and tales and and backstory that um I, rather i was writing myths and tales that informed um what i was writing and informed the stories and informed the history of the magic and i was not using those things as text at all it was sort of like writing my own first my, my writing my own primary sources um and it gave me a lot of exciting material because i started thinking about why you know why why this culture or why this magic and and how did this come to be and what do people think about it versus what's actually real um i have some I have some, I, I've, I've started those again and again, um, when I'm working on, you know, a second world fantasy, especially, um, but also just having a place to collect, you know, facts and figures and, you know, glossaries and language. And, you know, where do I put this PDF of, you know, 250 words of, you know, that I, you know, random generated that, you know, will become my fantasy language, you know, um, you know, having some place to collect those things. Um, for me, it's, it's sort of holding my feet to the fire and making sure that I am sort of sourcing the material for sourcing the material accurately, um, within my own head and not just sort of strewing papers about the room um and facts about my head and you know just trying to remember everything and it also gives me the freedom to have a lot of detail in that iceberg to have a lot of information um collected um in sometimes very rote ways and sometimes very creative ways um like writing my own you know origin stories and mythos and you know and having having gods and characters that never appear ever appear, you know, in the text, but making sure that I know, um, you know, like how far this goes. Um, and you know, it gives me, it's, it's good inspiration when you're, when you're really running dry, there's almost always something to write about when you're, when you reach into that pile of research, however organized or disorganized it is, whatever, whether it's physical whether you've got a notebook filled with it or you've got, you know, a folder on your computer or, you know, an archive on Scrivener of something, you know, something's there. There's, there's, I think there's a different way to do it for every book, for every person. Um, so I, um, I really like using them because it's the way I keep my head on straight when I'm dealing with sort of all this stuff that I'm trying to stuff in every sentence, every paragraph. Um, I don't know. keeps me, keeps me honest. I'm sure that everyone has, every writer for sure has a favorite character that no one has ever met or even read about. Like, I, I feel yeah. like everyone has that for sure. Yeah. I, I have, um, I definitely have a few and I have a few that will, you know, have probably made the page, but have really, really just like graced their peripheral vision, <laughs> you know? Um, and I often wonder about um, my, you know, when I read really great fantasy, I often wonder about, you know, the people who are on the sidelines and the backgrounds, like when it's really just artfully done and I'm thinking about what I'm reading from a craft perspective. Um, I really appreciate sort of, poking at the shadows on the sidelines, like trying to peer into the wings, you know, with, uh, with writers to see like who else is there, who's, you know, who's working the ropes. 
um, that kind of thing. It's, it's a, it's an exciting, it's an exciting thing being able to sort of peel back the veil just a little bit, um, and enjoy those side, those side characters more than, more than they're probably intended to be enjoyed sometimes. And speaking of peeling back the veil, we're about to do that now because ah. it's just about time for us to get into the world building jam. Yes. Yeah. Nervous uh, and excited. You, every, <laughs> you should be. I, I'm always excited and also slightly nervous, but it's okay. fine. All right. So for those of you who don't know how this works, we're going to be rolling some dice to figure out what kind of scenario we're going to be making up. Now, because it's October, we're actually not going to be rolling the genre today because this month is made for spookiness and we're going to be doing the horror genre without the dice roll. Uh. However, however <laughs> uh, we still have our subject, which is going to be between an item, a monster, a place, a historical figure, an event, or a cataclysm. And then we're going to be rolling into a theme and we've changed up the themes a little bit. We've got tragedy, sacrifice, love, metamorphosis, pride and honor, madness and the unspeakable, triumph and hope, and treachery and revenge. So we're going to roll some dice and we will see what we get. So first up is the subject. So we've got an event. And then the theme surrounding that horror event is going to be love. Mm. So Victoria, you're our guest. We have the genre of horror, uh, an event that is surrounded by love. So mm. take it away. Oh boy. Okay. Um, bonus points. If there are pumpkins involved, just, just so you know. Bonus points for pumpkins. Okay. Um, so. Hmm. I'm really feeling like, and maybe this is because I'm also in Massachusetts and, and October and pumpkins and horror. I'm really feeling like, forbidden love, Salem witch trials. Someone is, someone is on the gallows, um, with a loved one in, in, in the audience waiting for, uh, waiting, waiting for the, the, uh, oh. the hangman yes. executioner. Yeah. Okay. The executioner. Yeah. Like the, like it's it, the, the sentence, the, you know, the charges are being read one final time. The executioner is there and, um, and you know, the, that that's when the wind starts blowing cold. Okay. Um, it's very hocus pocus. Yeah. Oh, yeah I, I like need to watch that movie like every <laughs> year. Um, Me too. Yeah, the wind, the wind blows cold. Um, am I doing this right? <laughs> Yeah. There's no wrong way. There's okay. no wrong way. This is this is the brilliant thing about the world build jam. Mm. Um, so before we get going to before yeah. we continue on, can we talk about that forbidden love a little bit more? Let's yeah. let's 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 dig into that because that's yeah. the thing that kind of piqued my interest ever so much. Yeah, and why yeah. why is the lover like on the chopping block? Like what did they do? Yeah. Mm. Um I think the lover is protecting the suspected witch. And oh. instead became the suspected. Is the suspected witch in the crowd watching them? Is it the other yes. lover? Okay. Yes. Um, I'd like to throw in a little a little thing. the The person on the gallows is in fact a witch finder themselves, oh. and the forbidden love is that they have fallen in love with an actual witch. Yeah. So they're like an inquisitor, and like that's a, for a real witch, or like someone accused of being a witch. Oh, good question. Uh, let's see. Let me, let me pull out my, my book, the hammer of witches and see what it says. Uh, everyone's a witch turns out. Okay. <laughs> no, no. You got to find the witch's mark. Yeah. Maybe, no, the, I mean, maybe the, the inquisitor or the witch hunter isn't sure whether they're actually a witch or not. Maybe. Oh, okay. Well, mm, that's interesting. Maybe they're convinced, but they don't care that, yeah. they, you know, they've, sh they've been shown 
that it doesn't matter and love transcends that boundary mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not they've signed the book of Satan, right? Yes. Right, right. And um, Which has got to bring up all sorts of conflicting emotions, right? Well, like, what's my the God. cold wind? Is the cold wind contradicting that um, belief they currently have? I think for the, I think in the perspective of the person, the witch hunt, the witch finder on the gallows, mm-hmm. uh, I think that doubt is there. Yeah. And mm. it's heart wrenching. Um, and I, I say the, the, the witch in the crowd, um, the beloved in the crowd um, does not know whose power is, is being, the witch Evoked in the crowd doesn't know, Sorry doesn't know whose power is being evoked here. Yeah, yeah. doesn't know. Yeah, doesn't doesn't know whose power is being evoked. Doesn't know who is who is basically bringing in change. Victoria, uh, that sounds like a perfect time to throw <laughs> in the twist and fuck up our story. I don't know about you, but I'm going to roll this die and we're going to see what the twist is. Okay. And we have to incorporate it somehow. So okay. let's see how this goes. Can I just say one thing though? Yeah. Does anyone else have the song from Hunchback of Notre Dame by Frollo stuck in their head right now? Oh, Hellfire? Hellfire yeah. is a great song. Oh my god. Now I do. But 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 to be fair, that's all about burning and desire, not about a cold wind, but you know, that's fine too. You gotta warm up yourself with the fire. And <laughs> and fire. yeah, the sin of lust. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, let's see what this die says. Oh, <laughs> okay. Attach the whole thing to a major movie franchise. <laughs> what? Okay, so this twist is certainly a little bit more difficult. So we now have to take this whole thing and staple it on to a major movie franchise, no matter what it might be. So we're in the ballpark of Disney, but I'd like to stay away from that if possible and kind of push it to something else if we can. Should, should it still be horror? Uh, yeah, the genre doesn't change. It's it's a matter of we now, but we can now attach this story to a movie franchise somehow. No, but I mean a horror movie franchise. Yeah, we can. Yeah, that's fine. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. The worst one would be Freddy. Oh my god! Well, then it becomes a comedy. <laughs> I was I was moving towards Cloverfield. Oh, yes. Cloverfield! Go ahead, please go right ahead. Um, and I think that. You know, so I'm still thinking like, you know, reasonably coastal Massachusetts and and the cold wind starts to blow, but something's coming out of the water. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And. Uh, and the, See- the, the witch hunter is pretty sure that the beloved has summoned this hell beast from the depths. <sighs> Okay. All right. All right. All right. I mean, we're, we're still in Massachusetts, so we could instead do something like, oh, I don't know, Dagon or the old, uh, you know, the, the deep ones. I mean, there's so many things that we could do as well. Mm. Um, well, cause but, you're referring to the beast from Cloverfield, right? Like that, yeah. that big kind of Godzilla-esque thing, right? Right, right. Yes. So does that mean the witch... Um, cause we don't know, like, I guess the beloved doesn't really know if the witch is a witch, but she, he thinks that she is, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the witch is some sort of emissary of this creature to some extent? Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe the witch finder after talking to the witch recognizes that it's not Satan she's worshiping, mm-hmm. which is why he's more okay with the type of relationship she sees the witch as more of an animist or perhaps a shaman of some kind. And so this cold wind is the summoning, not necessarily of the great giant Kaiju, but maybe of one of the lesser cousins of some kind. Mm. And maybe we can kind of throw it in that way as well. Ooh. Is, is she um, even human? Or, or he? Oh, something we could also do. We, we could also just do um, the shape of water. That's and what I'm thinking. Yeah, th- that's that's not a bad idea either. Okay. So then you can't really you can't really hate the bull. Beloved, when they discover the truth, still loves this thing slash person. 
Okay. But it's okay. not a fault of its own for what it is. I, I think I, I think I have this idea. This is Roanoke, right? Oh. This is uh Oh boy. Yeah. So, oh, so, yeah. now, so so now we can just explain away an entire disappearance of a town oh, and yeah. we can just say that mm-hmm. that's what happened to them. Absolutely. And it's it's perfect that you chose Cloverfield, um, Victoria, because each movie is like so radically different and it's always right. a, like a mystery box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Except so, the third one's trash and don't watch the third one. That's true. <laughs> so so the witch calls in the witch calls in this 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 being mm-hmm. to wipe out the town so that the witch hunter can be saved. And so not only do we have the witch revealing themselves in order to save the beloved who might now reject them because yeah. it is proven it is mm, like risk. beyond mm, a doubt yeah. it is proven these are these arcane abilities this, this non-humanness is all there mm-hmm. um but also we have fully revealed the truth of the depth of the love the witch has for the creature yeah, yeah to expose like itself completely you know right right I, I think one of the interesting images that i'm now getting is the witch finder alone in, enti- in an entirely empty colony because he's rejected yeah. his love and she's gone back to the sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> All right. That's uh, tragic. That's, that's pretty cool. I don't think we're going to do better than that right now. Um, <laughs> so Victoria, thank you so much. That was excellent. And that means that we, we get to move on to the lightning round or Ooh. the rapid fire question part. So Victoria, my wife wants to know, is cereal a soup? You monster. No. no. All right. Uh, and uh, what have you been, uh, what have you been playing recently? Patty cake. Okay. And- <laughs> with the kids. <laughs> All right. And Daniel hit him with the rapid fire questions. Go. Um, so what would, if you could choose any absurd magical component for a spell, um, what magical component would you choose? Uh, tie ice tea. Tie ice tea. That's nice. nice. I'm that was you, but that had that one ready. Lord. I'm, I'm, looking, <laughs> I'm looking at my tie ice, tie ice tea across the room and wishing it had legs. <laughs> I mean, it's already like an alchemical process, right? With that tie ice tea. Yeah. yeah. And number two, what is your favorite historical fantasy? Oh my god. Um, mm, I wasn't ready for this. Gotcha. <laughs> 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 oh, um, I'm suddenly like forgetting all books I have ever read. I mean, it could be a cartoon. It's up to you. <laughs> um. You know, I'm just, I, there are so many, but I'm going to just admit, you know, in, in, in public for the record that I am a sucker for pretty much anything Sherlock. Yeah. Uh, Enola Holmes was like everything I needed the other day. And whether it's, I actually wanted to see that. I'm I'm glad that it was pretty good. Yeah. Whether it's text-based or film, like, I don't care how B it is. If it's Sherlock, I'm there. Nice. All right. And I need you to plug someone who is not yourself. Mm. Okay. Um, so this ties into um, my, it ties into all the time I've been spending reading with my kids lately. Um, but also um, an entire genre that I'm still very much needing to be more educated about as a reader i need to really delve um i have been devouring the mighty jack and zeta the space girl graphic novels by (laughs) ben hackey um they are middle grade ya somewhere in there probably but i love them i just really like as a parent as a reader i really enjoy them um, and they're just a great little bit of escapism in my life that I've been getting to enjoy and also like enjoy reading to my kid who, um, who loves all this stuff as much as I do. And it's just wonderful. 
All right. And finally, where can people find you and your work? So you can find my website at victoriasandbrook.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at vsandbrook. Um, that's my last name is very phonetic, Sand and Brook, S-A-N-D-B-R-O-O-K. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a page there. Um, I usually only accept real people I know friend requests, um, but I'm definitely on Twitter as well for anybody who wants to strike up a conversation. Um, and my most recent publication is on Giganotosaurus. It was the January release, um, and that's my novella, um, Les Jardins Animés, 1893. Um, as, as we mentioned, uh, it's mad scientist gothic um, with dancing automatons. It's brilliant. They're very cool. I love it. it <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's brilliant. Like, I loved writing this. I don't necessarily... I, <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant. I read it. It's brilliant. Thank you. We could Thank say you it. <laughs> Thank you for saving me. Um, Excellent. So that's, that was my most recent publication. Um, I have a list of other publications up on my website um, with links. Everything is online. I have some audio that's been published as well there. Um, so um, that's where you can find me right now. Fabulous. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been real fun. I loved this. Thank you guys so much for having me. <laughs> Anytime. And that was our interview. Uh, gentlemen, I had a lot of fun creating a combination of uh, the shape of water and the crucible, basically. <laughs> I still need to see that. You've never seen the crucible? No, I've seen the crucible. Chichiba. Oh, shape of water. Yeah, shape I haven't seen the shape of water good. either. It's it's quite good. It's not my favorite Guillermo movie, but it's, it's still quite excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what was your what was your favorite part of the interview, gentlemen? What I what I really enjoy about um, having some of our guests on, which we think we should do more, is being able to hear them read a little piece of, of their work, because understanding how rich like her um, language is in some of these pieces is huge, especially given that, you know, specific. We're trying to create a lot of um, unseen worlds before, um, you know, through our, our language and part of the art of that the writing is figuring out how do we get that across you know as succinctly and as delicately as possible and i think she does that in an amazing way i would agree that she did it in a really amazing way but i also would counter that with readings for fucking nerds um, <laughs> no 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 I, to, to be to be perfectly frank here the the her prose was really stunning and to hear it from her was really awesome i would agree with yeah. that it was enjoyable to talk about the process. Uh, I'm not sure if we've touched on it before, but a lot of uh, RPGing or world building, sometimes I get lost in research of trying to find out a topic that I don't actually know a whole lot about. Uh, and it's why we are on list. Uh, kind of like when I did the Fallout setting a while back, I did a bunch of research on dumb bunkers. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure the fact that I looked up where all of my local FEMA bunkers are has to put like a red flag on my account of some sort. Yeah. Talking, talking to Victoria about like the levels of depth of research is always really fun because mm -hmm. I always assume that, you know, it, it's not just me who does all of the deep research. You know, we all do deep research whenever in, we're into it, but I do love watching or, or the, the extents to which people will go for Mom with, Victoria with Victoria especially like she has a double burden of like a getting a setting right but also like getting a culture right and I think um the amount of research and her devotion to that research is like so important you know I'm pulling that off oh agreed I mean uh I you know as I've never published anything obviously I mean outside of whatever for all intents and purposes I've never published anything so to be able to kind of express and stretch outside of your comfort zone like that, being able to mm -hmm. talk about that and, you know, the community of writers and everything like that, that, that comes with is also really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that'll just about wrap it up for this week's episode of world build with us. A big thank you to Victoria for joining us once again. And remember that if you want to go ahead and send us your own world building prompt, you can do so by sending an email to worldbuildwithus at gmail.com. Or you can go ahead and shoot us a tweet over at Let's World Build. 
Of course, if you uh, want to get to the front of the line with your cool idea and have us talk about it sooner, you can support us on Patreon. Or if you want to skip all that and just talk to us directly, you can go and join our Discord where we'll chat about world building and what your favorite movie is and why you're wrong about it. And that's totally (laughs) cool. But remember that regardless of all that, we love you very much and we'll see you next time.